John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. As you know, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and we're sitting right around 50 sermons as we've walked through this together. And this morning, uh, we find ourselves at a, the turning point in John's Gospel. And it is here in these verses that John, through the inspiration of the Spirit, points us to what Jesus has referred to as His hour. The hour has come. The hour of Jesus. The reason for His coming. And if I could impose upon you just one more time, if you're able to, to stand with me this morning as I read God's Word aloud in the New Testament reading this morning, as you follow along, John chapter 12 Verses 20 through 26. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Now, among those who went up worshiping at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whomever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's Word in the New Testament. May it be a blessing to you. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, this morning as we open your word, we believe, uh, we confess that your word is inspired in the original autographs uh, by your Holy Spirit, who now in the life of, in the hearts of believers can open our eyes and our hearts to these truths and uh, Lord, help us to apply them to our lives and to those who do not know you. Uh, that, that your spirit can, through these words as well, convict according to sin and righteousness. And so we pray for that as well, Lord. And we ask that you would uh, attend to our time in your word. I pray as well, Lord, that you would continue to humble me and that our focus would only be upon Jesus this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Around 10 to 15 years ago, the big thing that you heard about uh, concerning organizations and churches around strategy for success was that you you need a purpose statement. You need a purpose statement. You must have a purpose statement and a mission statement or you're not going to be successful. Now, maybe I don't run in the same circles anymore or things have shifted in such strategies, but I just don't hear much about this idea of purpose statements anymore. I think mission statements are kind of a thing. But apparently, um, at least in, in the recent future, there still are those who have them. So I looked some up. You would think that some of these would be obvious. Like I didn't find Purina's purpose statement, but you, you think it would be like, we make food for animals, right? Like that's their purpose, you know? Um, but listen to some of the ones that I did find. Very interesting. Our common purpose is to help people achieve their ambitions. That's Barclays. Um, This one I found quite funny. To refresh the world. To inspire moments of optimism and happiness. To create value and make a difference. 
Coca-Cola. How exactly are you doing this, Coke? Shouldn't it be, we make stuff people drink, unless they prefer the other guy. General Mills gets it. We serve the world by making food people love. Straight ahead, right there. Here's another one. We care for people so they can be their best. We believe that being your best is about being your true self, engaged, fulfilled, and ready to take on the world. Hyatt. Really, Hyatt? You're so high-end you don't even serve breakfast for free like the Holiday Inn. (laughs) You know what the Holiday Inn's uh, purpose statement is? We serve free breakfast, unlike those hoity-toity Hyatt people. (laughs) No, that's not really what they say. But purpose is something that certainly any organization needs to think about. Certainly a church needs to think about. Uh, It's not maybe perhaps stamped somewhere uh, in literature for the church, but we know that it's stamped in the scriptures. And interestingly, Jesus actually speaks of his purpose in coming. And and he speaks of it in, in many ways. But in fact... Those many ways of describing his coming points to one purpose, which is what he has referred to as his hour, as his hour. All that Jesus refers to concerning his coming and using language like the kingdom being at hand, uh, uh, the glory of the Father, uh, these kinds of things is wrapped up in the mission to seek and to save those which are lost. Uh, Everything that the Gospels point to is a beeline for the cross. And of course, then subsequent to that, the, the resurrection and the ascension and, and the, the fulfillment of God's plan in that to, to reconcile sinful people to the triune God through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And there is something here that John, John's gospel shows us that triggers this purpose. Here's the main idea for you. If you have the uh, worship folder, it's written for you on the back of that if you're um, watching uh, online and the live stream this morning should have been uh, sent to you via email. Jesus' death is necessary for redemption and is also a call to those who are redeemed. Jesus' death is necessary for redemption and is also a call to those who are redeemed. And, and this is uh, the purpose for which Jesus came. And I want us to see three aspects of Jesus' almost encounter with Gentiles. Three aspects of Jesus' almost encounter. I say almost because it seems from the text that he doesn't really end up interacting with these who come to, to see him. But it does signal a very important turning point in Jesus' earthly ministry. The first thing that we see here, the first aspect is the Gentile request. The Gentile request. Look again at verses 20 and 21, if you would. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Once again, I want to reiterate the irony of this as compared to what we saw last week. If you look just a verse above, uh, after, uh, after people have marveled at Jesus in the triumphal entry, we look at verse 19. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Uh, This is their response to those who have come with the the, the palm branches and laid them out in front of Jesus and what we traditionally call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. 
And those who have come to gather, even as these Gentiles have come to gather that we see in our verses this morning, uh, for the purpose of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And um, the, the, the Pharisees have already decided, they've already plotted, it's time for us to kill Jesus. They then plot that they're going to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence because it's an undeniable miracle that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And now, once again, they kind of reiterate this purpose. And in so doing, they sort of, like Caiaphas, prophesy something here. You see, we've got to get rid of him. Now the whole world has gone after him. And ironically, the next verse that John gives us here is not that Jews were coming and asking asking about him, but that Gentiles were coming. And perhaps the Pharisees saw the mix of Gentiles in the crowd But John gives us here the specific desire of these ones who come to Philip. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, certainly they physically have seen him, but their idea is we we would like to sit down and, and talk with Jesus. These Gentiles are what we would call Jewish proselytes. They are those who have adopted the worship of Yahweh, Israel's God, from outside of Jewish parentage. We know of examples of this from Old Testament history. We think about Rahab, uh, who is brought into the fold of Israel as she rescues the uh, spies and then uh, helps them uh, in their uh, bringing down of the walls of Jericho. And so she is brought into the fold as a non-Jewish person by lineage. And then we think of someone like Ruth, the Moabitess, who uh, abandons her former life of pagan worship and says to her mother-in-law, I want to come and uh, be where you are, worship your God, and die where you die. It was a, a symbolic of, I want to follow Yahweh. I want to follow Israel's God. Of course, these two, as we know, uh, Rahab and Ruth, by God's providence, are actually included in the lineage of Jesus himself. So even in Jesus' physical birth, there are these uh, who are not uh, pure-blooded Jews, as it were. And we are reminded as we enter into this new phase of Jesus' earthly ministry that the culmination of Judaism should be in the Messiah. Uh, Just a a brief reminder that the word Christ is the, the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Uh, uh, the culmination of Judaism being in the Messiah. In other words, those who are following Yahweh and worship should recognize the Messiah and then begin to follow and worship Him because He is Yahweh too. Remember, we've studied in the Gospel of John. Jesus uses this I am language, uh, this uh, parallel, this understanding of of Yahwehic language that He is uh, saying, I am God. I am Yahweh God. And in understanding this, as we begin to see that Jesus is the the culmination of uh, these prophecies and and of Judaism, Jesus is not changing anything. Jesus is fulfilling everything. He's fulfilling it all. All that was prophesied of him. All that was prophesied concerning his first coming, he is fulfilling. And so we have that as the backdrop of this moment in the history of Jesus' earthly ministry, as well as the backdrop of the rest of the Gospel of John, where, for the main part, the Jews have rejected him. There is a small amount of Jews who have received him. They have followed him. We would, in terminology that Paul uses, call them the remnant. 
But for the major part, the Jews of Jesus' day have rejected him as Messiah. And it's ironic that now here, nearing the time of his death, there are Gentiles who are inquiring about him. The, the Jewish leaders are actually saying, let's kill him. And these Gentiles are coming and saying, we wish to see Jesus. Of course, we are aware that Jesus has done ministry on the outskirts of the Jewish territory and that there are those who had witnessed his miracles and heard his teaching. Mark chapter 7 and 8 locates the region of Jesus healing a deaf man and feeding 4,000 as the area of Decapolis, which would have included Gentiles. And so we know that they are aware of his ministry. We know that perhaps they have even witnessed or even received from his miracles in this feeding of the 4,000. And we are reminded, even as those things, as backdrops, the inclusion of Gentiles in the Messianic kingdom is the stuff of the Old Testament, outside of proselytes as well. We know Yahweh speaks of how people from every nation will come to him. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And some may say, well, that's, uh, millennial kingdom stuff. Well, I don't disagree with that, but it's also the stuff of the, 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 the spiritual kingdom that Jesus inaugurates when he comes to earth. This should not be a surprise to anyone that there are those who are Gentile who are coming to say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Here there is no less of an indication that this is a foreshadowing of this very truth. This serves as a reminder to us that our ultimate goal Our ultimate goal, if we are in Christ, is to point people to Jesus. This doesn't mean that there aren't other things that God calls us to do as the fruit of our justification, but our justification is found only in Jesus Christ. And we are to point to Him. As my friend Rick Holland says, when we talk about the gospel, we're ultimately pointing people to a person, and He is the one to whom our attention must be constantly drawn back to and, and that is to that is the the one to whom we are pointing people. As the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So even, dear ones, if we are in Christ, even as we are pointing people to Jesus as the only way to be reconciled to God, as they are sinners in need of a reconciliation to a holy God, we too are to look to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So when non-believers come looking into what we're all about, we assume that they are asking us to see Jesus. My plea with those who are in our midst who do not know Christ is that you might see Jesus. That you might see Jesus for who he reveals himself to be. Not the Jesus of your own making. Not the the Jesus that you wish he was. But the Jesus that the scriptures reveal. The Jesus of the Bible. In light of this request uh, of these men to, to see Jesus, Jesus himself has something to say as we see in our next point, the fruit that must be born. The fruit that must be born. Look at verses 22 and 23. Perhaps um, 
in surprise to uh, uh, what uh, these men have told him and, and then his response uh, as not really seeming connected to what they have told him. Look at this, verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. By the way, Philip and Andrew, those are Greek names. So probably um, these Gentile people recognize, like, oh, that guy's name is Philip. I should probably go and talk to him. He's from the region of Galilee. Perhaps he's a Gentile as well. So these guys are like, hey, we have a request. Somebody wants to come see the master. We should go and tell him. And Jesus answered them, not... Yes, please have them come and speak with me. He doesn't say, uh, hang on a minute, guys. I'll get to them in a little bit. No, he says this. The, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As we see in the last verse, the Gentiles have come to Philip and, 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 and Andrew, and, and they go and tell Jesus. And Jesus' response to this is now to say, His hour has come. There's a trigger here. There is something that happens here that is a signal to Jesus. Specifically, he says, his hour to be glorified. His hour to be glorified. Jesus has previously spoken of his hour in the Gospel of John. John chapter 2 and verse 4 to his mother when she requests of him that he do something about the lack of wine at the wedding of Cana. And what does he say to her? My hour has not yet come. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we, you will worship um, the Father. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well here. She is drawing out the distinctions between uh, the Samaritans, of which she is one, and of the Jews, and saying, where should we worship? And, and Jesus answers this question with an answer about the hour. Well, what hour? What hour is coming? What is the, what is the um, event that changes everything? It's the cross. The hour is not yet here, but the hour is coming, he says to the woman at the well. We see this also in John 5.25. We see this in John chapter 7 and verse 30, not yet his hour. We see it in John chapter 8 and verse 20, unable to lay on hands because his hour had not yet come. They were seeking to go after him. They were, able, they were seeking to go and, and capture him, but his hour was not yet. Now, however... The hour for the Son of Man has come. And even as we think about this, even as we think about times where they tried to capture him and it was not yet his hour, think about something else that Jesus said. He says that no one takes his life from him, but that he what? Gives it away. It is on the terms of the Trinity that the hour comes. Yet we see in the providential acts of God that... Jesus understands when these Gentiles come seeking him that it is that time. In what sense is the Son of Man going to be glorified? Let's first consider this title, Son of Man. Jesus uses this title throughout his earthly ministry. He uses it to indicate that he is truly human. More than this, it is to draw the minds of his listeners to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to Daniel's words from those verses. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Notice, notice how this is all coming together here. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus uses this terminology of the Son of Man. He's drawing their minds back to even this passage in Daniel. Of course, those who are listening into this do not realize exactly of what he is speaking. Jesus used the phrase Son of Man with Nicodemus when he told Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And here is this sort of glorifying type language. Uh, he, he is to be lifted up, but, but it doesn't seem like this is the way in which the Son of Man ought to be glorified. Because when he speaks about being lifted up, he speaks of the serpent who is on the pole in the wilderness that, to which the, the, the children of Israel are to look to stop being bitten by the snakes. For what purpose? To, to be saved. He says, now it is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be, to be lifted up. In what sense is he going to be glorified? Well, in one sense, it is his, in his death. Seems odd, doesn't it? Seems odd. The signal to Jesus as the Gentiles come to him is, the Jews have rejected, the Gentiles are now coming, it is time. It is time for me to be lifted up. This glorification must come through his humility at the cross. Think about Philippians chapter 2, the, the old church hymn called the Carmen Christi. Some of you are super familiar with this. Listen, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. And here's the beginning of that hymn. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, did not count equality with God a, a, a thing to be paraded about, to be put on display, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Uh, literally, uh, the meaning there, I think a better translation is that he made himself of no reputation. So instead of parading about the fact that he is the Son of God, what is, what's the terminology he uses? I am the Son of Man. And then he obviously speaks in Yahwehic language using these I am statements so that you know that he is Yahweh. In fact, what do the Jews do? Like, oh, okay, cool. You're saying that you're the same as the Father. Gotcha. Pat on the back. Go ahead. No. They pick up stones to stone him because they understand exactly what he is saying when he says things like I and the Father are one. In what sense is he lifted up? He having every right to claim to be the Son of God, makes himself of no reputation, but instead humbles himself by taking the form of a servant being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself again by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How is it that the Son of Man is going to be glorified? It is that through the, through the means of the cross, how do we know this? Listen to the rest of what the Carmen Christi says. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Wait a minute. I thought he, as the eternal son, already has glory. Does he not? He does. But what is, 
the humiliation of the incarnation. It is that the eternal Son of God would put on flesh and walk about, as we just saw in the Carmen Christi, with no reputation of being the Son of God. And then, even though he lives a perfect life, he never sins, he harms no person, but that claim will put him on a tree. And in that is glory. He is the God-man now, so his exaltation by the Father is in that incarnation, in, in the obedience in the incarnation, that people will someday look and say, the one that we nailed to the tree is very God of God, very light of light. And his name shall be above every name. He didn't have the name Jesus the Christ in eternity past, but he does now. And that name will be exalted. And in that same passage, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Kurios, is God, is King. My plea with you this morning is if you have not turned to Christ, if you have not humbled yourself to say, yes, He is Lord, there will come a time where you will and it will be too late. So do it now. It is through the humility of the cross that He will be glorified. And that time is now beginning And as Jesus said, this is how the fruit must come, through death. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here Jesus predicts the state of things for him at his death. In a sense, he will be alone. They will all flee from him. But this is necessary. His death is necessary for there to be the fruit that is born for the salvation of all who would believe. A a, a tree, a a crop cannot grow without first as a seedling dying and then coming back to life. That's what he's saying here. As those who are in Christ, we rejoice in the most terrible of things. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, would give his life for those who despise him. For those who were his enemies. And he would die alone, save for the Father and the Spirit. And yet He must die in order for there to be the fruit that is born, the salvation of many, as He says. The perfect God-man would give His life for those who despised Him, for those who were His enemies. And yet, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. That's my call to you if you're here and still in your sin. Christ died for sinners like you and me. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. In light of his own death, Jesus now brings an applicative statement for the disciples in this moment. Thirdly, the command to follow. The command to follow in verses 25 and 26. Look at those with me if you would. Whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his Life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We see similar statements to this in other gospel accounts. And the first part of these two verses is a call for us to consider the humility of Jesus in his death and how we are to respond to it. 
Think, think of this again in, in terms of the uh, Philippians 2, the Carmen Christi. What is Paul drawing our minds to? He's saying, look, you need to have this humble uh, attitude like Jesus had. And, and Christ's death and, uh, is not just an <clears throat> a, um, example to us, but it is an example to us. It is necessary for us to be reconciled to God, but as we look to his humility, we are called, Paul says in Philippians 2, to be humble in the same way. Therefore, Jesus says here, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There is a call when we come to Christ to die to self. There's a call to not value our lives above eternal life in Christ. Now, this is not uh, the idea of some sort of works-based righteousness. If I give up enough of my life, God will reward me with eternal life. No, it's not that you give up your life in order for Jesus to save you, but rather that is when the, the way of life for those who have trusted him. This is implied by what Jesus says in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is a similar call to what we see in other Gospels, that if one is to follow Jesus, it is to take up one's cross and follow Him. Follow Him even to the point of dying for Him, for the Gospel, for the good news. If the, if the call of the, the, the idea of the, of the seed going into the ground, dying and, and, and being, uh, bringing forth life is to the unbeliever, this morning, and it is for you to hear that you need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. The call here in this point is to the believer that says that if you are in Christ, the fruit of your justification is seen in the giving up of your life and your following in Jesus' footsteps. Now, that doesn't mean that necessarily you're going to have to die for your faith, though sooner or later it may mean that. But it does mean that as we said at the beginning, our focus is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep our eyes fixed on Him. What does it say there in Hebrews? We need to run the race that is set before us. And what is that race? What is set before us? The example of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him, followed all the way to the cross. He is the author, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. As the great church father Christosom says, of this verse, sweet is the present life and full of much pleasure, yet not to all, but to those who are riveted to it. Since if anyone look to heaven and see the beauteous things there, he will soon despise this life and make no account of it. This morning we're going to have brothers and sisters uh, walk through the waters of baptism in, in our sight. And that is... Essentially, what they are signifying by that. They have died with Christ, been buried with Him, and have been raised to walk, as Paul says in Romans 6, in newness of life. It's a symbolic uh, of Jesus' death, but it's also symbolic of their own death and raising to new life. And Christians, we are reminded by that means of grace this morning as we observe that, but that is true of us too. Our baptism is a, it's a flag in the ground that says, I am going to not only profess that I have 
trusted Christ, but that I am going to follow him as well. I love that quote from Christensen. Let me read it again. Sweet is the present life and full of much pleasure, yet not to all, but to those who are riveted to it, those who are, who are stuck in the here and now. Since if anyone looked to heaven and see the beauty of things there, specifically he's speaking of the triune God in, in, as represented in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is beautiful. He will soon despise this life and make no account of it. More modern day... Commentator uh, D.A. Carson says the choices cannot be acts. Uh, these choices cannot be acts of mere self-abnegation. Self must be displaced by another. The endless, shameless focus of self must be displaced, displaced by focus on Jesus Christ, who is the supreme revelation of God. Remember the old song: "Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will." What's the next word? Grow strangely dim, thank you. In the light of his wonderful face. So if we are those who are in Christ, this is our joy. Our completeness. There's a daily dying that occurs when we live for Christ and not for self. Not seeking to earn anything, but recognizing that Christ has already earned it all. We've been given his righteousness and we are able to live for him as if today is our last day. And that's how we ought to live our lives. And praise the Lord for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't always get it right, do we? But he forgives and he has forgiven and it is a permanent forgiveness. My call to you, if you are not in Christ, my plea to you this morning is this. Turn away from your sin. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful, beautiful, eternal, yet human face that bore a crown, whose wrists were pierced, who hung on a tree, who did not deserve it, but we did, who died in the place of sinners and rose again gloriously and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again. He deserves all glory and praise. Let me pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you here in our midst this morning that any of the noise of words that were unimportant would be taken away and that they would only see the precious Lord Jesus who lived a perfect life that they could not, who died the death that they deserved, who rose again to show victory over sin and death and is coming again to receive those who are his unto himself. Pray for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, that we would love you, that we would see this turning point in the Gospel of John for what it is. It is the next step in your earthly ministry, but it was a necessary step. And you call us to carry our cross, Lord, and to follow you. Not as a means to be reconciled to you, but because we have been and you have earned it all, and now we follow in your footsteps, Lord.
May we live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.